It's October 18th, 2015. Our message today is called, What Size is Your Goliath? What Size is Your Goliath? I do want to do a couple things as we start today. Uh, Number one, Pastor Wade was right. Strap yourselves in. Today will be scripture rich. It will be an intense meeting. We don't do scripture light here. Let me go ahead and get a couple things out of the way so there are no misnomers. Muhammad was a pedophile. Islam is evil. Allah is the devil. We are against Islam, but we want to see Muslim people saved. We love them with all of our heart. We want to see Palestinians call on the name of Jesus and win the hearts of the Jewish people because they look and go, how did our enemy fall in love with a king of the Jews? While we're doing that, we stand for Israel in this church. So pray for Israel. Pray for Israel often. What is happening there right now, there is no moral equivalence for. Uh, It is not escalating violence on both sides. It is not proportional attacks. There is a wicked, satanic desire to supplant God's people. It is the desire of Satan. Is that uh, unequivocally clear? Okay, while we're just getting them out of the way then. While homosexuality is absolutely sinful, wrong, deplorable, and abomination, much like adultery is, we love homosexual people. We want them to encounter the power of God so that they can come to a place of repentance just like all of you former sinners are becoming the saints of the living God. We we do not hate people. We hate behaviors. And it is not loving to people to ignore behaviors that kill people. Okay, now we got it all out of the way. I want to pray for Zeke Lamb and Submission Ministries. Let me tell you up front, nothing is wrong with Zeke Lamb. Everything is right with Submission Ministries. Every once in a while, it's good to pray for somebody and bless them when everything is going okay. This is not a Dear Santa Claus Christmas list. This is... We are united with Submission Ministries. We're excited for Submission Ministries. They have a couple big decisions that they're making right now. And with all of my heart, to the extent that we can muster generosity among life-changing ministries, I want to join with them with skin in the game. We're not going to pass an offering plate. I'm going to tell you, be obedient to the Lord. And I'm not going to give you any more details than that. Just be obedient to the Lord. Y'all ready to pray? Mighty God, we thank you for those that are advancing the kingdom around the world. We thank you, Lord, for the churches of the One Association. Lord, we thank you for submission ministries. They're bold, disciplined, amazing love for you. Lord, we ask that you would guide them in all that they do, that you would allow us to share in their vision here because you've given us one vision. We thank you, Lord God, for the pioneering spirit in that place. For those who dare to put their faith on the line every day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we say, uphold your servants there, Lord. Let your kingdom be built in our nation's capital. And let it send stars to the rest of the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, if we love that church that way, can you imagine how much, Pastor Wade, we love our church? Do you all love Jesus? Do you love each other? Turn with me to Genesis 15. There are many things that we may be accused of, and most of them are probably true. Having said that, we are a church that loves the Scripture. The Scripture guides our lives. It is not simply a moral platitude that we hoped and aspired to put on bumper stickers or car windows. 
If you spend any length of time with any one of us, you will find that the Scripture helps us make every decision every day and that we trust the leading of the Holy Spirit to show us how the Scripture applies to us. That being said, there is no area of the Scripture that is unimportant to us. There is no area of the Scripture that has been abrogated, set aside, or is now defunct or replaced by something else. Every area of the Scripture is living and active in the name of Jesus We are in Genesis 15, which incidentally Jesus Christ is the star of. Genesis 15 and verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord. Somebody say word of the Lord. Lord. In Hebrew, that is Debar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. In Greek, it would be Logos to Theos. Who in the book of John is called the word of God? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord, came to Abraham how? In a vision. Now, if I speak to you, you would say you heard me. But how does it work when it says the word of the Lord appeared to Abraham? I would submit to you that men of God have always been saved in exactly the same way. We hear from God. We see a revelation in Him. In some way, there is an epiphany, an appearing in our hearts and lives. And now that we know what we know, It demands that we live differently. What saved Abraham is in the sixth verse. He says, Abraham believed Yahweh and he credited it to him as righteousness. Your doctrinal statement cannot save you. A cracker and a wafer can't save a mouse when it falls on the floor and it doesn't save a sinner who is eating the cracker or wafer and wine kneeling before an ecclesiastical member of a worldwide institution. The only way to be born again is to have a revelation that appears in your heart and mind, a revelation that so fills you that it demands a response from you. And in your response, you can see that you are now placing trust in the Lord. Faith is not an inward private matter. Faith is as obvious as apples on an apple tree. It is as obvious as oranges on an orange tree. You will know whether or not a person is in the faith by the way that they act. And all theological attempts to avoid that truth have simply defended God from his own Bible. The truth of the word is that what you believe shows up in the way that you act. Do you believe the word? In the name of Jesus... I want to have a giant killing spirit in this place. In the name of Jesus, we don't want to back away from any revelation that we receive, no matter how difficult. Yesterday, I was stirred in my soul. We went to a men's event with the Assemblies of God organization closest to us. And there was a man there from North Texas, and he was wearing a Keith Green shirt. He said, go green on it. If you don't know who Keith Green is, do yourself a favor. Google it. Listen to it. Get past the style of music and the year that it was written in and listen to the man's heart. If you don't hear a a prophet to our nation, then something's wrong with you, not him. Listen until you love him. After you love him, then feel free to move on to something else. The man's name was Adrian, who was wearing the Keith Green shirt. And I said, Adrian, what are you doing here? He said, well, I was just telling Pastor Matthew here, I'm a missionary. I said, that is our very heart. Where are you a missionary to? He said, Jordan. I said, amen. So you're called to go behind enemy lines and turn sinners into saints. 
His whole countenance lit up. God is raising up a generation of people who will answer the call. 95% of missions around the world right now is to non-Islamic countries. But God is raising up right now fearless men and women who will not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death that will go into the heart of the enemy opposition and we will, in the name of Jesus, see lives radically transformed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. LCMF will answer that call. We will answer it with our sons and daughters. We will answer it with our lives because the gospel is coming back to Jerusalem. This began with Abraham and it will finish with Abraham. Are you awake this morning? If you weren't, you need to be here very shortly. Verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Say, I'm going to take possession of it. Abraham was called to take hold of something. You were called to take hold of something. We forget what is behind us. We press on to what is ahead of us. We take hold the hope of eternal life. We grab hold and take possession of certain things, whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not. I tell my body what to feel. I don't ask it how I feel each day. In the name of Jesus, my emotions were given to me to help me serve God, not to be an excuse for not serving God. Who you are, friends, is a spirit. God made you, and the eternal part of you is spirit. You live in the body, this tent. Some of you have better-looking tents than others. I will hope to be as handsome as Steve when we reach the ripe old age of late 40s. And your soul, your mind, will, and emotions is a bridge between the two, very often where warfare is occurring. We have to take hold of that spiritual truth that ignites the center of our being and invades our mind, will, and emotions and reforms it, renews it in the mind of Christ and commands our flesh to carry out the will of God. Genesis 9, the prophecy over Ham, Shem, and Japheth says this very thing. You just have to have eyes to see it. In verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. These sacrifices were meant to encourage Abraham that he would know that he was going to take possession of the land. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. I don't have a chalkboard here today, and it's a good thing, because we would never leave Genesis 15 if I had one. Each one of these sacrifices represents Christ. A, so to speak, virgin cow, if you will, a heifer, a, a cow that is never calved, speaks of purity, a burden bearer that is pure. When we see a goat, you ought to think of a sin offering. And when you see a ram, you ought to think of the king of the sheep. He is all of these. He said, cut them into pieces and arrange the halves opposite of each other. How much is a half? How many pieces can we have if we cut something in half? When you cut the heifer, In half, you get two pieces. When you cut the goat in half, you get two pieces. When you cut the ram in half, you get two pieces. That's six in all. Then there were two birds. He said, you cannot cut in half. There are eight pieces that Abraham is walking through. Those eight pieces are like the eight people that got off of the ark. They're like the eighth day. They represent a new beginning, a new certainty 
that we can have, that you are going to take possession of that which God has said. And he said, now, Abraham, I want you to walk between them. The very first thing that happens, very first thing, is then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Every step that you take in faith, every single one will be resisted from heavenly powers. If you are taking steps and there is no resistance, you need to ask yourself, why do I feel no resistance? Because the enemy is here to stop everything that God wants to do. And 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. There is no peace time. We are a church at war serving a God at war. The kingdom of light is at war with the kingdom of darkness. And it has been since the first chapter. Which begs the question, can you be a man or woman of faith and not be at war with the enemy's camp? We love people, church. Our war is with the principalities and powers that are playing them like puppets. We pray with passion. We preach with conviction. In the name of Jesus, we display the kingdom everywhere we go. That is the goal of a Christian. How seriously are you taking the kingdom? Are you so consumed with what's happening in your life that you've forgotten you're a soldier in a much larger army? It is so easy to get focused on what we want to do today or what we didn't get to do today that we forget we have a role to play in a much larger human drama that is teaching even the heavenly powers something about God's nature. Ephesians 3.10 says that God's intent was that through the church He would make known His manifold wisdom to the heavenly powers and authorities. Your life is supposed to speak a message. How clear is that message? We have eight pieces on the ground and we have a man that walks through them. Since we have six that are cut into half and two that are holes, it's very possible that he worked through them in a crisscrossing match fashion forming a figure eight. All of the New Testament is about a new beginning. And all of the New Testament comes right out of the Older Testament. You cannot get to the second floor of a house without going through the first. The pinnacle of the faith is what is revealed to us in the New Testament, but its roots go all the way back to this moment with Abraham and before. Somebody say amen in the house of God. If the man of faith that this began with had to fight with birds of the air, birds of prey. By the way, have you ever been reading Matthew 24, 28 and seen a kind of elliptical statement. Jesus is talking about the trouble of those days and the times. And then he says, wherever there's carcasses, vultures will appear. And you're like, "Uh, what? He's referring back to Father Abraham. The reason we do not understand our newer Testament is because we do not understand our older Testament. You need to get your order right. And as you get your order right, it will all become clear. And those of you that are fascinated with the last book of the 66... You do not have a hope of understanding the 66th book without going thoroughly through the first 39 and then the next 26 to get to the 27th. But when you do, oh my goodness, it becomes beautiful and it becomes clear. Listen to what happens in verse 12. Number one, what did Abraham do when the birds came down upon him? 
What do you do when devilish thoughts come upon you? What do you do when you are pushed by the enemy? What do you do when you are backed into a corner that is assaulting to your faith? What do you do when you are confronted with a lie masquerading as the truth that has made you feel small in your faith, powerless in your walk? What do you do, saints? You better drive it away. You need to get used to running to the the fellowship of the saints and not away from it when you're in trouble. Because if you can't drive it away alone, if there's more than a thousand, if the devil knew that one of you would chase a thousand, so he brought a thousand and one reasons, what do you do, saints? You grab a brother and two of you will chase 10,000. We are capable of more than he can muster against us. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. But you're going to have to fight. The idea that says, I'll sit back and if God wants it done, he'll do it himself. He's done all he needs to do. He's provided righteousness for all of humanity. Gave himself as a ransom for all men because he desires that we would be saved. He has poured out the very spirit of himself, of his father, and of holiness upon us that you would have what Peter says, everything you need for life and godliness. It's high time we stop sitting back waiting for God to do what he's already empowered and tasked you to do. You have received a commission. It begins with a great commission. If your life is about the salvation of souls, if your life is about the conquering of the enemy's territory, then you can be confident that your God is with you through every valley, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death. Do you live in fear? Is trepidation creeping up your driveway? Are you full of yeah buts regarding the promise of God? I know the Lord will provide for me, but I know he's told me to do this, but I know last month he said, I must do this, but in the name of Jesus, kick the devil's butt. Get rid of it. Remove it. When God said it, that settles it. That is the end of it. Learn what your king has said. Stop negotiating at the table of the enemy. Learn what your king's orders are and refuse to back up. Oh, is there anyone in here that wants to have a no-retreat spirit? Like Eleazar, son of Dodai, who will stand your ground while others retreat, freeze to the sword and go to work for your king. This is the making of mighty men. God gave Abram a very important promise starting in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Abram was supposed to walk through the pieces and God put him to sleep and and God walked through the pieces. Then the Lord said to him, no, for certain. Somebody say for certain. certain. If you're from South Louisiana like me, you can say it's going to be for true. Come on, buddy. It's going. Yeah, bro. It's going to be for true. If you're a King Jimmy person, verily, verily, I say unto you, it's going to be for true. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Is there anybody here that wants to interrupt God and go, I thought we were talking about me getting the land. This is the mystery in the church today. We want all of our blessings and we don't want to go through anything to get them. We want everything up front. Give me the icing, forget the cake. We're not eating the meal. 
We're not going through what it takes to get the end result. God just gave me the end result. Lie. Absolute lie. Everything that is yours is yours in Christ. But you must be crucified daily to get to anything that's yours in Christ. The kingdom, the way that the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, when returning to the churches that they planted in Acts 14, the way that they strengthened the church was to encourage them that it's through many trials, toils, and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. In other words, nothing strange is happening to you. This is simply labor pains to produce salvation that the world can see. God puts Abram to sleep and then begins to tell him, man, it's going to get rough for 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, somebody say afterward. Afterward, Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Before we go on to say how many generations, and I get wrapped up in a teaching that is off of our subject today. They'll be mistreated and enslaved. But afterwards, they will come out. Church, we are of the overcoming spirit of Jesus Christ. Difficulties will come our way. Impossible things will come our way. We are at war. We are going to taste of things that you would rather not experience. We will have setbacks. We will have things that would destroy normal human beings, but we are not normal human beings. We are full of the supernatural power of our king. And so we can look at the devil and say, you can mistreat me now, but afterwards I'm coming out in this foot, Romans 16, 20 says, is on your head. Put Romans 16, 20 on the screen. The Bible does not teach that Jesus has the victory alone. The Bible teaches that in Jesus' victory, it does something for you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under... Oh, say it loud. Under whose feet? feet. Now apply it to you personally. Crush it under my feet. Whatever the devil has confronted you with today, it may feel overwhelming. Maybe your children have been sick unending. Maybe your finances have been under attack. Maybe your very love of the scripture is beginning to slip from you. Get your dancing shoes on, saints. Exercise your faith. Read the word and take steps that say, Look, Lord, I am obeying you. And before long, steps turn into a walk. A walk turns into a race. And you will look back and the perseverance with which God has given you will encourage even you. We cannot sit on our salvation and wait for the world to change. That's a Motown song, but it is not a scripture. It is our job to change the world. You are supposed to be the catalyst of God's kingdom on the planet. You are like a a rock cut out of a mountain that fills the whole earth. Do you have small faith or big faith? Whatever it is, it's growing It's increasing. And if it's not increasing, it's because you are backsliding. So I say, with all the love that I can muster, repent. Let's get this right. Let's take steps of faith and let's do it together. Do you think Abraham was encouraged when he heard this? I love that God gives him several supernatural experiences before he tells him about circumcision. I think that was probably wise. (coughs) Judaism is one of the slowest growing Religions on the planet. I can't imagine why. You have to love Orthodox Judaism in the sense that they don't attempt to make it easy because God is worth it. 
perhaps a pure heart to encourage people about the grace that is freely ours that teaches us to say no to ungodliness has been corrupted in this generation to a kind of greasy grace that simply says come as you are, leave as you are and it'll all be okay as long as you tip us on the way out the door. Church, we are growing towards the king together. I don't know how many of you can feel it, but we are raising up leaders in our midst. People who have never preached are burning with words. People who have never moved in the gifts of the Spirit are moving in new gifts of the Spirit. There is something happening among us, and it is the kingdom of God. When you are concerned, if you ever wonder or worry, you know, why are we in a little storefront church? Don't get Napoleon's syndrome. Don't you do it. God likes to pick the obscure. He likes to pick those that got nothing going for them. Because then you and I will not become confused and think that it was by our great strength, our intellect, our prowess in any arena that we've accomplished something for God. But this little church is already stretching all over the world and planting other churches. Church, do you have a faith that wants more? that wants to grow, that wants to go, that wants to do more? Or do you just want to go a respectable distance in the eyes of your peers? Come on, answer that question for me. Do you want to go further? Abram heard this word and he was encouraged, but I'm going to tell you something else. We're at war. And God is so bold that he will announce his plan in front of the enemy. You all know what an enigma machine is? In World War II... German Enigma machine. If you never saw the movies that deal with it, I'm not recommending any of them. I think you could read Wikipedia and get what you need. Hitler was successful all over the globe. And we cracked his secret encryption. And we cracked it before he knew we did. They say that we cracked it because he was arrogant enough to put his name in every single transmission which gave us a key. So although the key changed every day, there were some words in every transmission that were the same, and we eventually figured it out. Do you know that our God needs no enigma machine? He can say, hey, devil, I'm going to put this foot on that side of your face, and there's not a thing you can do about it. He announces to Abraham his plan and what Satan will do. He announces to Abraham, I'm going to take you into this land. It's going to take about 400 years, and here's what's going to happen to you before you get there. The enemy heard that, and he did his best to stop the promise of God. The very fact that Israel is in the land and been declared a nation in a single day, May 14, 1948, is a testimony. It's a living trophy to the faithfulness of our God. When the enemy heard this promise, turn with me to Deuteronomy 2. Listen to what was going on in the land before the people got there. So we've gone from Genesis uh, 15 and about 2000 B.C. to now we're around the year 1500 B.C. in the time of Moses. And in Deuteronomy 2, they're about to go into the land. Pick up with me in verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The descendants of Lot. 
Verse 10. The Emites used to live there, a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephaites. I'm not going to do the whole teaching today. I'm going to tell you to trust me. The word Rephaite means giant. And in many translations, it says giant. The Greek is giant in the Septuagint. The Hebrew, Rapha, is giant. It just so happens that there is a race of giants. And the Anakites and the Rephaites were giants. And apparently the Emites were giants. Do you know where they were living? Between the Israelites and the Promised Land. Do you think that's a mistake? Have you ever read Genesis 6? In Genesis 6, there's a heavenly defection. The sons of God sleep with the daughters of men. And in Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim are created, the fallen ones. By the way, the Greek word for Nephilim is gigantos. You figure that one out, all you etymologists in the room. The enemy heard the promise of God and said, I've got 400 years to embed satanic opposition into this land before the people of God are coming, and I get to do this at a time when Abram doesn't even have a child? In 400 years, God said there'll be a nation, so I'll get ready for a nation even though I'm looking at one man, and I will embed giants between the people of God and their destination. You might even say that the devil had more faith in God's word than people often have in his word. In last case, you think it was just that. It's not just Lot's descendants. It's Esau's descendants. We see this everywhere. In, in chapter 2, look at verse 19. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you the possession of the land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. That too was considered a land of the Rephaites, who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zanzumites. They were a people of strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Can we say giant races? Look at, look at Deuteronomy 3.11, uh, 3.10. We took all the towns of the plateau and all of Gilead and Bashan as far as Salika and Edri, towns of, of Og's kingdoms in Bashan. Only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaites. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. That's a big dude, isn't it? Everywhere they looked, what they're facing are giants. We can do this all day long. In fact, let's just skip to Deuteronomy 7 so that we don't have to. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, When Yahweh, your Elohim, brings you into the land... You are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations. What's it say? Larger and stronger than you. Every time you face an enemy, you know up front that you are not a match for the enemy, but the king inside of you is more than a match for the enemy. A ministry that goes out from this group. Uh, they are us. They are carrying out our heart. Every Friday night goes to a, a place that is infamously known as the F-Bar. It's a notorious hive 
of sexual immorality. They were threatened with crowbars last night, night before last. It's hard to say because it's between Friday and Saturday. They're there all night. They've been threatened by the police. They're threatened by people almost every week. And do you know what their response is? Loving tenacity. And because of it, we're seeing lives wrenched by the power of God. You can go where they're burning their children in the fire to Molech, so to speak. You can go to Planned Parenthood today. Many of our families are there. We refuse to back down or to give up because the church is the answer for the evils of our time. Paul told Timothy that we are the pillar and foundation of truth. If we back up, what will the outcome be for the lost? How could we be worried about offending people in this day and time? Are you not offended? We're worried about offending people. Are you not offended? Our Supreme Court justices cram immorality down our throat. Our mayor cannot tell the difference between a man or a woman and doesn't know which bathroom we should go to. We now have a third gender on birth certificates in this state. Are you not offended? A 67-year-old decathlete can't tell whether he's a man or a woman. You ought to be offended. But we're also, we have the answer. Man, if you had the cure for cancer, what would you do with it? You do. I do. The power of the Almighty God has been invested in His people. It is our foot that He puts on the devil's neck. When He called Israel into the promised land, they face seven nations. And those seven nations can all be demonstrated to have giants among them. He always calls you to deal with giant problems. He always will. How big are your problems? And I'll tell you how big your God is. And if you're experiencing no problems in this race, perhaps you've made a treaty and intermarried with them. Because the rest of us, we're covered in spiritual blood and guts, friends. I can't, I love the concept of a vacation. We don't know what they are because we are full-time Christians. Even when we go on vacation, do you know what we do? The exact same thing that we do when we're right here. Do you live and breathe for the kingdom? Did you give your life so that you might find his life? Are you still trying to hang on to both? Church in here, there are so many that are serious. I mean really serious. And there's a few of you hiding among the rest that are not all that serious. You go to a serious church. You hear a serious word. You belong to a serious God. But you don't take him very serious. Does that hurt you to hear? I hope it offends you enough to provoke action in you. Do you want to be somebody who sat on the outside of a great company of men and women of God? Or do you want to be one of their number? We're going to pick up our Bibles, church. We're going to take it to all seven giant nations. And we are going to see the glory of our God. The enemy hears the word of God and he takes it so seriously that he spent 400 years seeding opposition into the pathway to the promised land. Were you called? How strongly were you called? 
How, how many of you are so certain with the purpose of God in your life that you can write it in a single sentence without any hesitation? When you get to that place, you can be sure that the devil also knows what you're called to do, and he will do all in his power to stop you. But after 22 years, I'm still here. After longer than that, Matthew and Cassidy are still here. Wade and Christy are here. The elders are still standing. What, do our elders not go through trials? Look at what's sitting on the front row in this church. Death does not even slow us down. Do you know why? We're born of an overcoming supernatural seed. Oh, church, that you might get that overcoming spirit in you. That you might be so full of the Holy Ghost that you stop thinking in terms of limitations. And the only question that you ask yourself is, will I be obedient or will I cower? That's all that's before us. The devil cannot pour enough opposition upon a real Christian to keep him from succeeding in what God has called him to do. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. We've been moving from the law and into the prophets. We'll generally speak and go from left to right in your Bible, making it easy for you to follow along. Because that's what we are, all about easy. I would apologize to you first-time guests, except if I did that today, you would realize that next week it's the exact same thing. These are not once-a-year messages for us. We live, breathe, eat the Word of God, and the Word of God is a double-edged sword. It's not the kind of thing that you simply give to infants to play with. It's the kind of thing that transforms lives, slays demonic powers, and causes you to stand victorious over every problem that you will ever face. We don't just preach a good game in this church. We actually believe that you carry it out every moment of your life. So you will not catch us whimpering in a corner, hiding from today's social problems. And while Halloween is wicked and happening in this month, most of us are not the kind that would turn out our lights and hide from it. It's the one day a year people come and knock on our door. It's a chance to preach the gospel to every living soul. I will not dress my children like demons and have them masquerade begging for food. But you know what I will do? I will stand up in the midst of these dark times and sing the glories of my king to all who will listen. Church, we better figure out where we want to stand. We are at war. I don't know of a single war that was won by hiding in a bomb shelter. Are you in 2 Samuel 21? 2 Samuel 21 and verse 15. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbib Benab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. If you read this and also the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 20, you find five giants listed. There's a Bible difficulty here I won't go into other than to say, anytime you ever think there's a contradiction in the Word, you simply need to read more of the Word. The problem is with your understanding. The problem's never with the Word. Five giants in the time of David. In Noah's day and Genesis 6, there were giants. There was a promise given to Abraham in about 2000 B.C. And around 1600 to 1500 B.C., Moses is carrying out that very promise, and he encounters seven giant 
nations. In the time of David and 1,000 B.C., we're still encountering giants. You might reasonably confer or deduce from the law and the prophets that all people of faith will encounter giants in their life. The question is, how tall is your giant? What kind of giant do you have? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. This is one of those verses that everyone knows. But I don't know that everyone has lived. 1 Samuel 17, 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. I'd have you boo, except I don't want you to boo the word of God. If you have a footnote there, it might say something else, like, you know, three meters or six cubits in a span. The NIV really took a kind of pansy way out here. You know, it's true. Goliath was over nine feet tall. He was also over six feet tall. He was over five feet tall. He was also over four feet tall, just so that you know. Over nine feet tall. You do the math here, we're talking nine feet and ten inches. Nine feet, ten inches. What, were they too embarrassed to write? Why didn't they say nearly ten feet tall? Nine feet is quite a bit. I want to show you a picture of uh, three interesting human beings. So on our far left is Yao Ming. Yao Ming is seven feet, six inches tall. In the middle, the median height of this group, Shaquille O'Neal, seven foot, one inches. On the right, five foot, four inches. Kevin Hart is five foot four inches according to his bio. Now, if you had to audition for a comedy tour, Kevin Hart might appear a giant to you. Maybe how could I talk to him? He's so accomplished. He's wealthy. He's all these things. And in your eyes, he may be a giant. He doesn't look much like a giant when standing next to Shaq, does he? I've stood next to Shaq. We've eaten in the same living room. He and my cousins are friends. I feel about like Kevin Hart standing next to Shaq. And that's when he was in college, before he got all that baby weight on him. Look how much shorter Shaquille O'Neal is than Yao Ming. Do you see that? I want to draw you a ratio and proportion here just to get it out there. The difference between Yao Ming and Goliath is the same difference that you see right now between Shaq and Kevin Hart. Can you begin to wrap your mind around that? So if we had Goliath standing in this picture, Yao Ming would be to Goliath as Kevin Hart is to Shaquille O'Neal. Do you see that? Are we getting an idea? By the way, his spearhead is 15 pounds. Uh, A shot put in the Olympics for the men is, is right at 16 pounds. His armor, just the the chest piece that he's wearing, the chain mail, 125 pounds. Shaquille O'Neal is a big human being. Yao Ming, a bigger human being. Goliath stretches your imagination, doesn't he? 
So when you read this story, you have trouble not fast-forwarding to the end. Little David, little David, look, little Kevin Hart, he runs out there and he, and he whoops him. And you know how the story ends. Did you catch the part where Goliath was a champion of the enemy? Have you ever thought to yourself, how many men did he kill? How many Israelites did he kill? How many people had tried to stand up to him and got utterly decimated before? We read this and we know the outcome, so it's not much of a struggle for us. I mean, you can't wait to get to the end of the chapter. You're like, cut off his head, David. Cut off his head. You know, when the enemy heard the promise given to Abraham, he took God at his word and he set himself in opposition to it. David also took God at his word and he set himself in opposition to the enemy. When you hear God's word, I want to encourage you to pick a side. Pick a side and get on it. The devil is not conflicted and God is not conflicted. They're at war. The only people that are conflicted are those who are in the world and not supposed to be of it, but are attempting to live in two lives. I want to tell you, Christians do not win every battle. I know your Sunday school class says that they do. I know that, you know, the little prayer that your grandma quilted 200 years ago and has been handed down to you and you keep somewhere in your house as a keepsake, it, it speaks like that. But can we all say David is a giant killer? Well, turn with me to Psalm 31. Let's, let's hear about the giant killer. I love healing evangelists. I love them. They're amazing. Their stories inspire me. The thing that I like least about healing evangelists, though, is they don't tell you about the times between the victories. They don't tell you that they prayed for 1,739 people that didn't get healed. They just tell you the, the first one that got healed and 1,740 that got healed. And they don't tell you about the giants in between. And so it gives you the idea that these guys are something that maybe one day you could aspire to be, but, but you're surely not now. The truth of the faith is it is an agonizing fight. That it is a hand-to-hand spiritual combat every day of your life. And that you are going to experience losses. You're going to get scars. You're going to have to get healed. It will take the very breath of God coming into you to pull yourselves up by the bootstrap, pick up your sword, and go to work. This mamby-pamby Christianity that is go along to get along has got no place in the kingdom. And the moment that persecution is turned up, they side with the enemy. Church, you better decide now that you can't be bribed away. You can't be seduced away. You better decide now that you died to the world because the devil is more than capable of offering you kingdoms to get you to worship him rather than the Lord. And nobody says that they took the kingdoms, but you can see that they have its, its money in their hands. You can see that they have its desires in their heart. You can see that the world is capturing them. Do you want to be distinct? Do you want to be separate? Listen to David in Psalm 31. Pick up with me in verse 9. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. What? Oh, David, do you not know that it's Friday? David, have you not been told that you're a champion? David, go buy some pretty-haired Korean preacher's books to find out that you, if you're in distress, man, 
It's just because you don't understand the grace revelation. Church, they are preaching out and out lies, and people love it. They buy it, they attend it, they celebrate it because it's what their itching ears want to hear. And everybody is sure that the Scripture is true, but they're sure that it must be true about someone somewhere else. If the love of most is growing to grow cold, can you identify most? I mean, can you find most? Surely, surely most has got to be at least 51%. Apply that filter, and let me ask you if we are not swallowing camels while straining at gnats. We better get our calling and election right. We better get our love of the word right. How tall is your Goliath today? Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years are groaning. You know what, David? Just get out of that situation, man. What are you doing? It's hard. Go somewhere else. You don't like where you live? Find a new place to live. You don't like your job? Man, God's got the best for you. Leave your job. Christians are not supposed to have it hard. Oh, I know, David. Pray for the rapture. You just get raptured from all responsibility, David. It'll never be hard. My life is consumed by anguish in my years, by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. How's that for divine health? Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. That's got a certain princess bride characteristic to it, huh? Right away. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. Have you ever read that the Apostle Paul said we have this all-surpassing power in these earthen vessels or these jars of clay? What happens when as a human being you are shattered? So, oh, well, you know, don't sin and it won't happen. Really? You sound like Job's friends. It happens to those who are at war. That's who it happens to. You want to know why your life is so difficult? Because you're at war. Be more concerned when your life is easy. This pastor starts looking for a fight when I don't have one. We'll go on a new mission trip. We'll go take on a new project because soldiers are supposed to be at war. It's not all wreck time. And yet, there is joy in a glorious battle. My whole family has been shaped by it. My delicate, sweet, beautiful flower of a wife She's scared to speak up when we got born again, when we got married. She's more inclined just to <laughs> pray about it. And now she's a general among women. You hadn't had a chance to listen to her, hadn't had a chance to hear her share her heart. You are missing out. My children, what a mess they are. <laughs> doesn't matter whether you were adopted into the Stevens family or whether you were born in the Stevens family. The constant training in the Word causes us to become something. And it's true in the Pebro family. It's true in the Sutherland family. It's true for the Richards. It's true for the Browns. It's true for the Arizinas. 
Church, we were meant to be shaped by our struggles. David is crying out in agony, but let me ask you, who is he crying to? Oh, he's crying to the one who can help him. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Oh, my page turned while I was preaching. That's, that's not good. Verse 13. For I hear the slander of many. There is a terror on every side. They conspire against me. They plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Look at verse 21. Praise be to the Lord for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. When you've been at war and it took God to sustain you because you faced giants and didn't cut off their heads. You faced giants and lost. The king of kings is there with the broken and the contrite. Let me ask you, do you think that he despises those who tried and failed? May I ask you a more pointed question? Do you think he despises those who fail to try? Before you answer it, you should read Matthew 25. There is no shame in taking on giants and walking away limping. Your God is able to heal you again, and next time you'll get him. You know what there is shame in? Sitting on your salvation and criticizing those who are at war. Church, we are going to be a body that is at war. Sometimes the things that we battle with are giants because they're secrets, they're private. If I tell everybody else that I'm struggling with this, they'll look at me different. Well, maybe they need to. Maybe they need to look at you different. Maybe you need to look at you different. Well, if so-and-so knows this, I just don't... Guys, we don't have the right to stand and contemplate the results of obedience. We only have the right to be obedient. I'm going to ask you, do you think so little of your brothers that you don't think they would join you in killing giants? Boy, this church has been attacked from every side since about 2002 when we showed up in Texas. And you know what? We're doing the same thing today we were doing then. We're preparing saints. We're launching saints. We're seeing people who were formerly goats become king of the sheep. You know, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I believe that Jesus Christ will utterly transform your life if you simply step onto the battlefield and try. I believe it with all of my heart. When we are thinking about this subject, you may be racing in your mind to stories like Caleb. Caleb in Joshua 14 he wanted at the Giants, even though he was 85 years old. And you know what? He beat them. You may be thinking about David in the end of the story. But as a pastor, I'm thinking about your story today. And it's not over yet. You're still standing in the valley facing your Giants. How tall do they appear to you? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to get into the Newer Testament with you. Have you ever had your city besieged? 
you ever been overwhelmed? Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I love you, I appreciate your zeal, but the thing is, is if you knew, if you knew, I, I, I just, let me encourage you that you are not an exception to the Scripture, not one of you. I can say it with absolute certainty. We all have giants that we're facing, and the Scripture is equally true for all of us. None of us are so sophisticated, so complicated that we're an exception to it. The Scripture is true, period. I have very dear friends, family members in here that I admire. I admire anybody that I see their life completely transformed. I don't know that I've ever met people that I think are any stronger. And they're not exempt from trials any more than you are. Went to go worship with Nick and Sam and Baj and Natalie yesterday. Because that's what we do when things get difficult. We worship. When things are hard, we begin to encourage each other with the glories of God. The Arizinas lost their baby yesterday. And their response came from 2 Samuel 12. They decided to do what David did. They said, you know what? We will go to be with him, but he will not come to be with us. So we're going to throw a party. We're going to show our trust in the living God. And we began to worship with each other. And we began to bring out our finest foods and our finest drinks and we began to celebrate the goodness of our God. We see our shares of scars. We see our shares of attacks from the enemy. But you know what? We see our shares of victory too. We're still holding on to children that are miracles. We're still looking at lives that have been transformed. And we are not overcome with grief or distress because our God is just as true today as he was the day before. Oh, church, let this sink in for a minute. Do you have a fair weather kind of Christianity? The moment things don't go your way, do you look for a way to escape some easier ground? Do you hear from God in a new direction that contradicts all previous directions and the truth that you are trying to hide from is that you simply don't like what he's told you to do. Nobody says that they turn their back on God anymore. They simply say, he told me to do this now. God is not a schizophrenic. He's not. He's not bipolar. The scripture actually says that he doesn't change his mind. He knew 400 years before what he was going to do. But if this had been an American charismatic thing, Israel would have got to those seven nations and went, you know what? Uh, I feel the Lord leading me anywhere but here right now. Why? Because it's hard? Friends, every obstacle that we face, everyone is an opportunity to display God's glory. You know? I was praying with little Sam today, and I can call her little Sam. She's as tall as I am, but she's about one-fifth of my mass. And she is full of power, full of power. 
Guys, we are, are struck in the face, but we are not destroyed. We are hard-pressed, but a Christian cannot be crushed. Do you understand? There is a persevering nature in us. There is a tenacious faith in us, and it is shaping us. So your day was difficult. Your week was hard. You have issues. Well, just to be sure, when you look to your left and your right, there's nobody else in here that's experiencing any difficulties or has issues. The question is not what size is your giant. The question is what size is your God. So I'm going to ask you, my problem to you might look like Kevin Hart standing next to Yao Ming. Maybe your problem looks like Yao Ming standing next to Goliath. It's all a matter of perspective. You know how you get the right perspective? You put the king in the center of it. He's bigger than all of it. Can you hear me? First Thessalonians 2. Say there when you were there. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Now, if he had to say that, I mean, isn't that interesting? I notice not so much the questions people ask anymore. I listen to the statements they make, and I wonder, why do they feel the need to tell me that? Like, for instance, if I'm in a group of lost people, and uh, they say, hey, you know, who are you? And I say, ah, I'm Eric. You know, I never say I'm pastor so-and-so. Uh, uh, my, my mother named me Eric. I, I think it was her boyfriend's name. I have no idea how that happened. Nobody in my family's name Eric. And I don't know why we put titles out there other than we're trying to defend ourselves from the get-go because I love to just hang the word Eric out there. So they talk for a while, and they usually tell me all about their lives, you know, all their interests, all of their worldly passions. And then they say, hey, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I'm in love with Jesus Christ. And you should see the statements that follow that. Oh, I go to church. Really? I didn't ask. Why do you feel the need to tell me that? Well, you, you, you know, my, my, my wife attends a ladies' Bible study. Well, good. She can watch you from the heavenly mezzanine while you're on fire in hell. I mean, what is it that you hope to get from me by telling me that? Oh, you feel guilty, don't want to admit it, and you're trying to justify yourself. Church, if Paul had to say to the people, our visit to you wasn't a failure, what were some of the people saying? They were saying it was a failure. Wonder why. We had previously suffered and been insulted at Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Do we face strong opposition? Do Christians suffer? Do Christians get insulted? An average week in this church involves being threatened by police, crowbars, and spit upon. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know what? God is not responsible for Goliath in the sense that God didn't bring Goliath to David. Goliath is the product of extraordinary sin and a wicked people. That's what he was the product of. 
But the fact that David gets a chance to meet Goliath is God testing David's heart. Will you do what I've told you to do? Do you value me more than you value your own life? Will you attack the enemy or will you make treaties with him? And David looked around and he sees the entire nation in a bad place. But you know the story. He was declared to have a heart after God. I don't know why you face the particular Goliath that you do, but I know that the fact that you are facing Goliath, Goliath may not be of God, but the chance to face him is God testing your heart. So what's he finding? Excuse mongering? Escapism? Or is faith rising? Oh, Jesus, that you could get the word of God in your heart and water it, water it and let it grow so that in these moments, your heart is being inclined towards God and faith rises. I was shooting guns with a man the other day and he'd given me, you know, his testimony and he's a sweet guy. I like him. I, I ended up praying for him later and a bunch of other things. But he missed a shot and an expletive flew out of his mouth. And I mean a first class expletive. Like the best or worst. And I just went, hmm, how about that? I don't know where he heard it. <laughs> I, I'm Church, when you're pressed, if missing a shot in skeet causes you to have an expletive fly out of your mouth, what does that say about you? I do not want to add weights upon your shoulders. I want to tell you that the reason the weights are upon your shoulders was to test you to see where you are at. The king of kings lifts up the broken. He lifts up those who are oppressed. He reaches down and takes hold of them and raises them to where he's at. Take honest note of where you're at in the faith and take full action in the direction that you need to go. Can you hear me? It would be so sad to have giants sitting on top of people in this church. And you don't know where to start. You know, Goliath taunted David for 40 days. Did you know that? It's 1 Samuel 17 and verse 16. He, he taunted him for 40 days. You know, David couldn't find one ally, not one who would go fight with him? Let's elect a hero. Let's let him go fight the battles. What if it's a battle that nobody else can fight for you? Like the one that happens every time you're alone with a glowing idol in a remote control. What happens if it's a battle nobody else can fight for you? Like the cell phone sitting in your pocket. What happens if it is a battle that no one else knows? Like, I wonder what it would have been like if I'd married a doctor. What happens when these kind of Goliaths are sitting on your soul and the Lord begins pressing them? What if the Goliath in your life is a job that you just would never let go of because it pays too good, you know? As we were sitting as pastors this morning, we began to think about this. And I thought, you know what? Let's put Kevin Hart and Shaq and those guys back up there. I want to show you something real quick. Uh, go to the next picture and we'll come back to it. The average human head. It's the only other picture in that. Uh, there you go. The average human head. 
is between 9 and 10 inches from chin to the top of the head. 9 and 10 inches. Now, there are a few Stevens in this world that will remain nameless. That they, they exceed the norms. If you're closer to 5 foot, your head is probably closer to 9 inches. If you're closer to 6 foot, we're creeping up on 10. Uh, you do the ratio in proportions for a man who is 9 foot and 10 inches tall. We're talking, you know, 16 to 18 inches from chin to the top of it. That's a big head. Somebody said that's a big head. <laughs> that brother got a big head. There's a town in Louisiana called that, but we, we don't want to go there. No, really, you don't want to go there. Go back to the other picture. Okay. Seven foot and six inches. Seven foot and one inch, right? Is that the difference between the two tallest men in that picture? If we shortened any of them by 18 inches, wouldn't they look a whole lot more manageable? Maybe what you need to do to your giant is cut off his head. You see, when you cut off their head, they're not nearly as tall. Uh, it just works that way. Maybe that's why David carried around that head everywhere he went. He said, look, I want you to know, when I caught this fish, it was actually this big. I mean, you're looking at the reduced size right now. My problem may not look that big to you now because I whipped it. But it looked a whole lot bigger before I won. How big is your giant? Well, the giants in your rearview mirror are a whole lot smaller than the ones in your headlights. Maybe you need to pick up a stone. The Word of God is like a stone in a sling. And a stone might knock him down. Then you might need to pick up a sword. The Word of God is a double-edged sword. And you might need to cut him down to size. Cut off his head. I'd like to identify for you a few giants that we were just kicking around this morning that I know are in the room. So if you are sitting there and you say, uh, is pastor preaching about me? Yes, yes, I'm preaching about you. But the only way that everybody else will know I'm preaching about you is if you tell them. So how about you just listen and wonder who should your pastor preach to if not you? Five giants that I know are in the room. Number one, new spiritual steps. It's a giant in your life that says, you know what? You've gone this far and that's far enough. I can't take new spiritual steps. I mean, after all, I've been stuck right here for X amount of time. When you're dealing with that kind of giant, maybe we could go to Exodus 34, 11. We're going to take one from the Old Testament and call it a stone. We're going to take one from the New Testament and call it a sword. And I'm going to give you two for five giants in the room. David had five stones. You know why? There were five giants. He got one that day, and it took him a lifetime to get the others, but he got them. He had to have some help from Abishai just to get them. Obey what I command you when? Today. No, no, y'all not with me. Obey what I command you when? Today. Understand that when God gives you a command, He doesn't give you the prerogative to be able to decide when you would like to fulfill it. How many of you, if you have a child and you love your child, will say, I want you to do this, and then you can get back to them in a year and they haven't done it, and that's okay with you? Okay, well, if a year is too long, how about a week? If a week's too long, how about a day? Are you getting me? We're trying to measure grace here. 
If you are counting on grace, it's not grace. You understand what I'm telling you? If you are trying to measure the amount of mercy that you can receive, like, can I do this one more time and get away with it? It's, it's not there for you anymore. You're deceived. Grace actually teaches you to obey the Lord. That's what grace is. Grace appears the moment that you're actually obedient. It is not there when you are not obedient. And you might need to learn the difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is when you deserve something and you don't get it. Grace is when you don't deserve it and you do. Obey the Lord today. You want to say, I'm facing a giant of new spiritual steps. Well, maybe the first stone you hit it in the head with is, the sun won't go down today before I attempt this. Let's move to the next one. Let's take a New Testament sword, if you will. How about 1 Peter 1-2 for our new spiritual step? who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Why were you chosen? For obedience to Jesus Christ. So in the law in Exodus, we find out that we obey God today. In the Newer Testament, the Brit Hadashah, you find out that the reason you were chosen was for obedience so he separates you he fills you with his presence he sprinkles you with his blood but he did those things so that you could be obedient you know what that does to the idea that says i've come this far and now you'll just have to be patient with me until i can come the rest of the way it totally destroys it this is excuse mongering wrapped in christian language the moment that you know something is right to do you cannot wait to do it you hear me it's not me. James has said this all along, and I've said it till I'm blue in the face, but I, I think it just, I think you're just used to me saying it. The man that knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins. Sins. So it's not a question of can I do it tomorrow? The question is can I live in sin today? Do you have a giant in your life that is keeping? Do you know that the Lord's been moving your heart to interpret tongues, but you're just scared and you haven't stepped forward? How many times have we preached on not given a spirit of fear, not had a, a, a spirit of timidity from 2 Timothy, the first chapter and 7th verse? That has come up so many times. If you have a giant mocking you because you won't take the next spiritual step, the Older Testament is like a stone to hit him in the head with. Shut him up. I will do it today. The Newer Testament is like a sword to cut off his head, bring him down to size. God himself chose me for obedience. You know what, devil? You look a whole lot shorter all of a sudden. You know, I bet he strutted up to the desert of Israel right outside Jericho, the wilderness. I bet in the spirit the devil walked in nine feet, ten inches tall. But when the Lord was done with him, after hammering him with the word, I bet he was not three feet tall. Church, we have to cut our problems down to size with the word. How about this one? The reason that you're having problems in your life right now is because there are curses, demons, or witchcraft coming against you. This is a very popular one in the spirit-filled arena. Let's put a stone to it. You ready? Proverbs 26, 2. Let's take a, a, a shot at this giant. Like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow. An undeserved curse does not come to rest. 
I don't care how many popular people get out there and teach that Christians are subject to witchcraft and if your granddaddy did something wrong, you need to go kill a chicken or whatever ridiculous thing and say his name twice with your head under the sand. Let's go ahead and put a sword to this problem. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. Whatever could have ever been affixed to you, period. It all fell on Jesus himself. If you are in Christ, it all stuck to Christ. And when he died and was resurrected, you were in him. There is no such thing as witchcraft that prevails against Christians. There is no such thing as demons that have power over Christians. There is no such thing as a curse someone else puts on you. But understand something. If you believe that those things have power over you, John 8, Romans 6, if you present yourselves as a slave to something, then you are a slave to it and it is your master. Do you know why? Because you don't know who you are in Christ. You don't know what you have in Christ. Let me be really clear. If you brought me Adolf Hitler's furniture, I would anoint it with oil and serve communion on it with no problem. You can put me in the middle of an Anton LaVey satanic service and I will have absolutely no problem with it. They will all end up running from me or killing me. One or the other. I promise. We are the apex predator in the spiritual world. If these feel like giants to you, it is a matter of perspective. And Christ has become too small and the enemy's work has become too big. How do we fix that? When you read the word, he will adjust your focal point. You will see Christ as the center of everything and it will all be small in the light of him. If you need more apologetics on that work, I'll help you. I'll help you with any of these. I'm just tackling the ones that came up at the table this morning. How about this one? A giant of discontentment. You know, pastor, the real problem is my living situation. The real problem is my work. The real problem is somewhere. Well, when were you happy? When was that? When were you content in Christ? Let's start there. And if it wasn't in the last decade, can we go ahead and say that probably your present circumstances are not your issue? Let's, let's hit it with a stone. If you lost the ability to fight, we're helping you right now. We're putting stones in your shepherd's pouch and a sword in your hand. Here is number 16. We're going to start in verse 8. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle. Let me ask you, the first stone you need to hit the devil with is when you feel discontented, is it not enough that the Lord has saved you? That the Lord himself has filled you? Is that not enough? No Christian that I know would ever admit to the Lord not being enough, but are you living like he's enough? Are you still dissatisfied that, you know, my life is just not what I hoped it would be? The people that I know that are dwelling in discontentment has, have usually dwelled in discontentment for as long as I've known them. It's a giant in their life. Unfortunately, you can't always put to death somebody else's giant. You can stand with them, 
There's a difference between standing with them and going, you know, it's a giant, and standing with them and encouraging them and helping them put it to death. If you're discontent and you are sitting in here, it should be enough for you that the Lord set you apart for him. Hit that giant in the head with that stone. Then let's pick up the sword from Ephesians 3.12 and see if we can cut the head off of discontentment. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Let me ask you, if it's enough for you that God has separated you out and you're wrestling with discontentment, you got him rocked on his heels now because God has separated me out. What does this verse say? In Christ, being in Him, getting inside of Christ, being immersed in Christ, you can now come to God with freedom and confidence. You show me a man that's been standing in the presence of God in freedom and confidence that's discontented, and I'm going to call you and him a liar. Nobody has ever walked out of the presence of God discontented. You know, In fact, Moses and Elijah went into the presence of God and forgot about food for 40 days. Elijah came down, did some, or Moses came down, did some work, went back for another 40 days without food, 80 days. I'd be pretty discontented if I didn't get to eat for 80 days. I'm pretty discontented when I can't eat for 80 minutes. I like food. What made him okay? He had been separated out for God. He was in his presence with freedom and confidence. Do you need to hit your giant in the head with a stone? Do you need to pick up a sword? Will your pride let you admit when you're wrong, or will it always take a sledgehammer? How about authority? I squeeze this one way down the list. How about authority? You know, Pastor, the issue is my boss. He, he's abusive. He's mean. Well, how was your previous boss? Well, you know, come to think of it, he, he was a jerk and didn't know what he was doing. How about your boss before that? You might not have a problem with your boss. You might have a problem with authority. You know, uh, Pastor, I'm so glad I'm at your church. My last church was terrible. Well, you probably won't like this one either then. Pastor, I'm glad we're here. We had a great time at our last church. The season's closed, and, and the Lord's brought us on uh, here. Oh, you'll love this church. Church, Deuteronomy 1.15 says this under the law. This would be a stone you can knock down authority issues with. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected, and appointed them to have authority over... I appointed them to have authority over... If Moses could appoint people to have authority over thousands, so y'all say it with me, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. We like commanders of thousands, but tens, that's a little personal and uncomfortable. By the way, it went ahead and also said, and tribes. In your own family, God's put people over you. Immediately outside your family, he's put people over you. Outside that, outside that. These are realms of authority. And if God established those, are we sure that it's not God we're upset with? Let's let's think through that. The devil has tricked more Christians into authority issues that you're convinced are a personality conflict or communication problem. No, no, friend. You just don't like when anyone else exerts authority in your life. You know what? I love authority. 
I look for the opportunity to be under others' authority. I am so pleased when I'm in a situation where there are godly leaders who have vision and I don't have to carry the authority. If you've ever had to use real authority on a regular basis, you're thrilled to death when there are others that understand it around you. This is why Jesus and the centurion got along so well. I mean, it really, really is. If you could knock it in the head with a stone that says everybody is under authority or if they're in God's kingdom, and then cut its head off with Hebrews 13, 17. The giant's weebling. He's about to fall. And then the word says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over. They keep watch over. As men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. I'm going to tell you, I had one of the longest strings of incompetent bosses you can imagine. We won't give you his last name, but his first name was Rogesterman. He left a really special mark in my life. And uh, Rogesterman was responsible for the lending division of a banking institution, and he could not read credit reports. You know, that's a little bit of a problem. It'd be like being an appraiser and not able to read MSRP listings. Uh, SRP, that's cars. MRS listings. Um, it, it, it's, it's a bit of an issue. And I was just complaining to the Lord about this giant in my life. He's controlling my income. If I don't do his work for him, then I am not going to get paid. All of those things that you and I both whine about. You know what the Lord told me? I gave you this job. Start thanking me for it. I felt like God had just told Abraham, you're going to be mistreated and enslaved 400 years. Like, you are kidding. What I didn't know was what it would form in me. I didn't know that when you stand up under unjust authority, it honors God as the ultimate authority. I didn't know that all authority, whether good or bad, shows something about your relationship with God. Then I found phrases in the word like, consider whether we should obey you rather than God. And I went, oh, so the only time I'm allowed to tell him to take a hike is when you've told me to? Would you please tell me to? No? Okay. Yes, sir, thank you for my job. By the way, I, I, I bought a house and had children while I was working there. You know, convinced I was in hell the whole time. And really, it was driving hell right out of me. You don't know what authority's doing in your life. If you did, you wouldn't need authority. Let's take the last one, the biggest one, okay? In this room right now, we're all dealing with a giant of death in some way. Death shows up as prolonged sickness. Death shows up as everything that is the product of the fall. Let's hit it in the head with a stone. Let's take Micah 7.8, and let's recognize the temporary nature of this problem. Do not gloat over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. We need to be able to look even when we're experiencing the pain of death and recognize something. This is temporary. This is light and momentary. You hit it in the head with a stone and then you put the sword to it with something like Corinthians 15, 54 through 58. 
when the perishable has clothed itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Say, will come true. If we say will come true, what does that mean about it now? Well, it's declared to be true, but we're not living in the fullness of it. We're still touched by death on every side. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We can look at every sickness and say, have your fun now. My king's able to deliver me from this furnace, but I will eventually swallow you up in victory. We can look at every loss that we experience and say, you can gloat now, but you won't be gloating long. Spiritually speaking, you can say, you can walk over, but you're going to limp back. (laughs) Devil, you have tangled with a Christian. And if you should succeed in taking from me, I will certainly succeed in taking from you. Mm. Our reaction to the advancing of the enemy needs to be a victorious spirit. Not cowering, hoping that he doesn't hit us again. Mm. That's not God. That's never been God. Church, I want to close with a quote from Finney. Now, everybody loves Finney and nobody would have liked him in their church. You know? Revival from heaven comes when heroic souls enter the conflict determined to win or die. Or if need be, to win and die. I'd like you to re-examine Matthew 16, 24 in that light. Matthew 16, 24 is one of those scriptures that so clearly lays this principle out. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is death daily for him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me We'll find it. You want to know how to knock down your giants? You hit them with the word and you count your life as nothing. The giant only gets bigger when you value keeping your life, when you value protecting yourself, your reputation, all of those things. It actually makes him taller and taller and taller. The more times you repeat why you can't do something, the more emboldened he becomes. But when you hit him with a stone from the word, when you hack off his head, what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with man things are impossible, but with God all things are possible, becomes true in a very special way. My hope for you this morning is whatever your giant is, whether we're talking about a giant of a new spiritual step or we're talking about a giant of a problem with authority or a giant that is discontented or a giant that is the effects of death, whatever your giant is, even if you feel as if you are dealing with witchcraft, it doesn't matter. Whatever your giant is, if we appropriately hit it in the face with the word and cut its head off, you will leave here with it shorter and Christ taller. If you're fond of telling us how tall your giants are, then I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do about it? Has it been taunting you more than 40 days? When I ask you to stand to your feet, and don't do it yet, when I ask you to stand to your feet, I'm going to ask you to make up your mind that you're not just standing on the outside. 
that when you stand up, something inside you is going to stand up as well. That those areas of habitual defeat, you're going to take on in the moment that you come to your feet. That those areas where the enemy has demonstrated mastery over you and the word says that he doesn't have it, you are going to stand up on the inside. In the areas where your excuses have made your giants taller, you're going to today stand up and rise above that for the first time. Some of you, some of you need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you're fighting a battle with an unloaded weapon. The Lord has enlisted you in His army. He's called you His son. And you are flailing about because you are not immersed in His power. I prayed for people on five continents. Nobody's ever not gotten filled. So that ought to do something for your fear, right? Your fears of inadequacy that hold you back, the fear of expectations that are holding you back. I, I have more faith for you than you have for you. So if, if you don't have faith for it, but you're willing to try, I'll have faith for us both. If you want to be filled with the Holy Ghost, you will leave this building filled with the Holy Ghost, provided you're not committed to a sin that you won't let go of. That's the only thing that'll hold you back. And I'll help you with that. If you're here and that's the issue and you don't know it, I'll pray for you. The Lord will tell me. I will call it out. You can repent. Then you get filled with the Holy Ghost. Bottom line, everybody will get filled with the Holy Ghost. Period. I, I can stand in any room in the world and do that in any language in the world. And you know what? The Lord's never let me down. He won't let me down today. That's a giant that I'm standing on top of, dancing and having fun with. Some of you don't need to be filled with the Holy Ghost as much as you need to be born again. You do. There's no shame in that. The shame is in pretending you're healthy when you're sick. Don't sit among Christians and go, well, you know, I kind of think or I hope. Make your calling and election sure. On what day are you confident that God's nature entered you? On what day did that happen? Don't leave that undone. If you want to be filled with the Holy Ghost, we're going to be on that side of the stage. You want to be saved. If you're like, look, I've been around Christianity. I know who Jesus is, but I, I tell you, I'm not doing the will of the Father, and I do not feel like I'm his son or daughter. You come to that side of the stage. Don't come to the middle when you need to come to one side or the other. That's an exacerbation of your problem. If you have a physical ailment, and you're like, look, you don't know what a giant this is to me. I've been praying and praying and praying and I'm losing. And I don't like to go pray because if I go pray one more time, it's like it, it depresses me rather than encourages me. Well, then come forward and let's, let's work on that together. Amen. That, you might, our elders are going to come right here for that. And you know what? I got a pretty good track record. They love the Lord. They, they love the Lord. I trust our elders implicitly. When I'm sick, I do not go to the doctor. I go to our elders. If you leave here and you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost and you don't, if you leave here and you need to be saved and you're not, if you leave here and there's a giant that followed you in and he follows you out, imagine that you're standing before the king. How are you going to deal with that? The Holy Spirit is dealing with you. Consider one thing. The last words I'm going to speak to you today. He's under no obligation to ever do it again. He's not. He's making it clear to you now. 
he has no obligation to ever do it again. You tell him no, and you may have grieved him for the last time. When we stand to our feet, stand up on the inside as well. Salvation, here. Baptism in the Holy Ghost, here. Healing, right here. And as broken pieces of pottery, we will see the all-surpassing power of our God.